we are going to dig into Colossians 3, focusing on greed and sexual immorality. And there was a lot on my heart that um, that God has taught me, and I really hope that... Um, that it ministers to you guys. And what when I was praying yesterday for the talk, what the Lord just kept putting on my heart was um, to not let yourself be distracted because the devil tries to bring a lot of distractions, whether it's worries of the day or it's, oh, these topics don't apply to me. This is for someone else. And I think that there's a deposit that the Lord wants to put specifically into every single person and this might, you know, what I, what we talk about, you might not think that it completely applies to you, but I think there's a deeper truth that God still wants to minister to every single person with, and that in that deposit, he will then use you to be able to minister to other people. I also wanted to say before we get into this, <clears throat> a lot of, um, a lot of the other talks that we've had have been about um, God healing our hearts. And then in toxic relationships, we kind of went into things that the Lord needed to work in us first. And this talk is really going to be about things that the Lord needs to teach us and work in us. And so I'm not touching sexual abuse I'm not touching things that have been done to someone. We're, that's an entirely separate discussion. So when we talk about sin, we're not talking about things that have been done to you. And I just want to be really clear in that um, because when when you mix that up, it, it can create confusion. I'm going to open up in prayer. <clears throat> and we'll dive in. <sighs> Lord, I thank you so much that you are good. And I thank you that the entire reason that you created us was so that we would be in constant worship and dependence on you. And I thank you, Lord, even for this cold and that it has forced me to be in more dependence on you. And I just pray right now for every single woman sitting here that you would, you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive everything that your Holy Spirit is wanting to deposit. And I pray that you would break through every agenda of the enemy. You would break through every lie of the enemy. You would break through every distraction. That we truly would be sober-minded so that we can pray as we're digging into your word, Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that whatever you're wanting to do tonight, that it would happen that my agenda wouldn't get in the way and that no one else's agenda would get in the way, Jesus. And um, just please, Lord, I pray that your truth would be like a double-edged sword and it would pierce our hearts, it would pierce our motives, and that it, you would cleanse us with your word tonight, Jesus, in your precious name. This was a lot bigger in my PowerPoint and this version ruined it, so... Read along with me. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and first, got to stop there, because whenever I teach, we always talk about context, right? Like, I love studying scripture. Whenever you study scripture, it has to be in the context of everything. So, we don't have time, but if you read all of chapter 2, you would see that he is talking about how they have been raised with Christ. So this is kind of like um, one of those, like Paul just likes asking questions when he's already given you the answer. Okay. So he's like, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, 
passion, evil desire, and greed. And the translation here is actually wrong. It really is, which is idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And then verse 12 says, so as those who have been, yeah, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You can go to the next slide. So the verse that we're really going to pick out is verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You can't really consider something dead unless it is dead. And Paul had already told us in verse 3 that we are dead. You have died. That's past tense. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So if you're dead guess what? The members of your body, your flesh, consider them dead. Does that make sense? Like, if you have a cold, consider you have a cold. You are dead. Therefore, consider you are dead. So, we're putting these things to death because we're already dead and we've been crucified with Christ. And so the first um, the first word here, some translations just have immorality and some have sexual immorality. And if you guys don't like getting into the Greek, keep listening. Okay? We'll get through it quickly, I promise. But sexual immorality comes from the word... I, I didn't even look up how to pronounce these. So just don't go off of that. But yeah, porneia. The root of the English term pornography or pornographic. Hmm. It's derived from porneo to sell off, which is interesting. So porneia is properly a selling off of sexual purity. So it's promiscuity of any and every type. So that would include a lot of different things. Adultery, fornication. It would even get into pornography and other things of where you are selling off or surrendering a sexual purity. The next word is impurity, and that comes from the Greek word akatharsia. So it's from two different words, a, which means not, and katharos, which means clean because it's unmixed, it's pure. So, you're not clean. You're not pure. In a moral sense, the impurity of lustful, luxurious, profligate, which means excessive or self-indulgent living, which is interesting. 
most of the time we see the word impurity and we immediately just think that it's lustful thoughts. And that's, the, the word has a lot more connotations than that. Which we're also going to see in the next word. Some of the versions translate this word just as lust instead of passion. The NASB specifically translates it passion because it's really just the word pathos, which is raw, strong feelings or emotions which are not guided by God. So it can mean consuming lust because obviously that's an emotion and a feeling that is not being guided by God, but it's so much bigger than that. And so it includes any strong feeling, anger, worry, anything that is a passion not guided by God, which includes a lot. You can go to the next slide. So evil desires. The first word for evil is kakos, inwardly foul, rotten, inner evil. And epithymia, a passion built on strong feelings or urges. Desire, so together, desire, passionate longing, lust, craving, desire for what is forbidden. And we'll get into that. Greed, pleoneskia. The desire for more things. Lusting or greatly desiring for a greater number of temporal things that go beyond what God determines is eternally best or covetousness. And this was so cool when I was looking this up. Idolatry comes from idolatria. Anyway, there's lots of L's. And it literally means image worship. So idolon means an image. And it was funny because we were actually talking about this in Sunday school. And what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, something that is an image is not the actual thing. It looks like it. It has maybe components of what it is, but it's not the real thing. So yes, we're made in the image of God. There's, he made us look like him, but we are not him. And then Latria, this was so cool because there's two words for worship in the New Testament. And you guys have heard my dad preach about this. So there's proskuneo, which is literally fall on your face before someone. And in Revelation, when they all fall on their face and worship Jesus, it's proskuneo. This is Latria, which is this service rendered to God. It's this lifestyle that you're living. So idolatry doesn't necessarily mean that you are literally bowing down to an idol. It's just you are serving an image instead of the real thing. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I'm going to define idolatry in this way. Meeting our needs in our own strength. So we're literally serving and going through life for ourselves or for another image other than God. And I think it's really important. Um, I'm a super like detailed person, which makes me really good at my job. But I've had to train myself to like constantly step back and look at the big picture. And sometimes at work, I have to like gather all this information and then I have to digest it and regurgitate it in a way that someone that's like four levels above me is going to understand. And they're not going to understand all the details. And so I think it's so important when we're reading scripture that you see all the details and then you take a step back and say, okay, what's the 10,000 foot view? And then you go back and you look at the details. And when we look at our life that we do the same thing. And so right now I want us to take a step back and look at the 10,000 foot view. In the very beginning, God created us, and he created us with specific needs that he wanted to meet in himself because he created us to live in complete dependence on him. He, he didn't even create us knowing the difference between good and evil. He wanted us that dependent on him that for us to know, Jesus, is this good, is this right, or is this bad, we would have had to go to him and ask. 
Does that make sense? Like, and so, so God created us with these needs that are good and right when they are met in the way that he created us for them to be met in, but then sin comes in and it mars it and it twists it. And so when sin comes in, it takes something that is a good need, it's a rightful need, it's a godly need, and it causes it to be twisted and we try to meet it in our own strength. So God created us with the need for hunger. Food is good. Amen. Hallelujah. But when sin comes in, it becomes gluttony. When sin comes in, we eat the wrong things that make us sick. And so God didn't create food to be bad. He created food to be good if we are going to him. And if whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, that is good. He created us with the need for thirst. But when sin comes in, you get drinking frappuccinos every day or drinking alcohol every night. And you get dependence on something other than God. God created us with a need for relationships, for family relationships, and for relationships with friends. He created us to need that. But sin comes in and it makes it a need that's greater than our need for our relationship with God. And that's when it gets twisted. It's when we look to people to meet a need that can only be met in the Lord. <clears throat> God created us with a need for purpose. Every single person is supposed to have purpose because they do have purpose and they're supposed to know their purpose. And God created us with that need that we can only find met in him. But you see that all throughout the world where people try to find their purpose outside of Christ sexuality. God created sexuality. He could have created us non-sexual beings. And I remember, not going to lie, I still do this sometimes, my God, like, why did you have to create us as sexual beings? Like, you could have made it so that we get married, and right after we say, I do, boom, we're a sexual person, and now there's no sin, and all the issues that it you know, teenagers go through and all the loneliness and all this stuff like is gone. He could have done that. Or he could have just had us procreate in a way that wasn't super pleasurable and we just didn't deal with it. It was like, okay, we're pregnant. Yay. You know, like little kids are like, oh, they kissed. Now they're pregnant. You know, like we can't, okay, now you're pregnant. And he could have done that, but he didn't. Like he created us with a need for sexuality. But, and so what I want to dig into a lot is, I think, well, okay, yeah, I'm going to go. The church is doing pretty good at talking about these other things. And, and they're talking about how food is supposed to glorify God and how relationships are supposed to glorify God and the purpose of all of these things. And, and a lot of times, though, we're not really talking about why God created sexuality. And it's not just for marriage. And so sometimes people talk about that. Like, yes, you know, marriage is great and look forward to having sex within marriage. Like, cool, yes. But sexuality is more than that. Because otherwise God would have created every single person to get married. And according to Paul, he didn't. So he created people to be sexual outside of marriage. Think about that. God also created us with a need for clothes and shelter and money. Those are legitimate needs. Like, in our day and age, we don't barter. We need money. But when we try to meet those needs in our own strength and apart from God is where you get into greed. Does God really need, like, like is God really providing for me with this outfit with this vacation, with this house, or is this me trying to meet my own needs in and of myself? And I'm not going to lie, like, greed is one of the things that the Lord has had to deal in my heart so much with. Basically every single thing in this list, God has either given me a ton of breakthrough in, or we're still working on it. But, but greed is one that I would say I have had a lot of breakthrough in, 
as a child, I was extremely greedy. And I would literally, and most children do this. But parents, please train your children that this is greedy. I would just sit with the toy books. And instead of just being like, oh, that would be nice to have, I would literally just spend hours thinking about, okay, well, if I had this and I had that and I had that, and then my life would be better. And then if I could have this, and I was like nine years old and I would sit and read all the house magazines and be like, okay, when I'm older, I'm going to have a house like this and I'm going to have a house like that. And then in college, I was thinking, I went through like an entire budget and how much money would I have to make right in, in the job, right out of college so I could buy a house at this age and it, it I, like it would consume me. And that's greed. It's not cute. It's greed. And so God took me through a long journey of learning to completely rely on him to have my needs met. And he has actually blessed me financially a lot. And, but in that it's, he's made it so that I can bless other people and so that I can take trips to Israel (laughs) like on Monday and great things like that. But I honestly, I spent a lot of time in prayer because Israel is not cheap. And so I spent a ton of time in prayer saying, God, is this really how you want me to spend this money? Because it's not my money. It's his. And that, is this really how you are providing for me? Or is this just me saying, oh, that would be great going by my emotions, by my passion, that raw emotions that aren't being guided by God? Is that just me saying, oh, yeah, Israel would be great. I'll have a lot of emotional highs. Of course, I'll be closer to Jesus. Of course, it's God's desire. But that doesn't necessarily mean it is. So I wanted to talk through these because we have to understand, like, why God created. Like, God created us with a physical need for hunger so that we would understand what it means to hunger for him. He created us with a a physical need to thirst so that we would understand what it means to thirst for him. He created us with needs for relationships with other people so that we could build into them eternally and so that we would understand our relationship with him. Like he created mothers and fathers so that we would understand him as a mother and father. And And he created us with a need for purpose so that we would be constantly looking to him to have that fulfilled. He created us with a need for clothes and shelter and money so that we would constantly be reminded of the fact that he is our provider. And so go to the next slide. So what we talked about earlier, and again, I wish it were bigger, so I I mean, I'm going to read it to you anyway. But why did God create us to be sexual beings? And this is so important it's this one Hebrew word, yada. So this is a quote from um, a blog from Authentic Intimacy. I post stuff by them on Facebook. If you've never gone to it, you're missing out. Yada. The Hebrew word for sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife in the Old Testament is the word yada. Yada literally means to know deeply or intimately. So Adam lay with his, Adam knew his wife, Adam yadded his wife, and she gave birth to Seth. That's literally what it says. He yadded his wife. The word yada appears in the Old Testament more than 940 times. No, there is not that much sex in the Old Testament. The word yada is more often used to describe intimacy with God. His with us and ours with him. Here are a few examples. You have searched me, and you yada my heart. You know my heart, Psalm 139.1. In all your ways, yada him, and he will direct your paths, Proverbs 3.6. So in all your ways, know him or acknowledge. Moses said to the Lord, if you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so I may yada you and continue to find favor with you so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Exodus thirty three thirteen. And so we're going to go to the next slide in just a second. But the reason that God created us to be sexual beings is because Ephesians says that sexuality And the relationship between a husband and a wife is supposed to reveal the relationship between Christ and the church. But as you read scripture, 
And as, as you put the pieces together, it's so much deeper than that. And so I want to read another quote on the next slide. God intentionally, not unintentionally, like I have questioned many times, God intentionally created our sexuality as a powerful metaphor of his covenant love. Everything God has created for us here on earth has a spiritual purpose, revealing something about God. Our sexuality was intentionally created as a holy symbol or analogy reflecting how God loves us. Throughout scripture, the one flesh union of marital sex, sexual infidelity, and sexual immorality are used as pictures to describe Christ's relationship with the church and our call to be faithful to our covenant with God. I hope this doesn't, if you're younger, this might be like, oh my goodness, this is kind of weird. But God designed this. And this is also why the little ones are not here. Sexual desire invites us to pursue covenant. How many 20-year-old men do you know that would pursue marriage and covenant without sexual desire? God created it on purpose. So sexual desire invites us to pursue covenant. Our bodies literally remind us that we were not meant to be alone. Sexual desire is not a bad thing. Although it may lead us to temptation and sin, God has given us sexual desire to remind us that we were made for love. Our romantic and sexual longings compel us not just to have sex, but to pursue covenant. We were created for more than a hookup. We were created for committed love and intimate knowing. Spiritually, you were not created to be alone. God did create some of us to be physically alone, whether it's for a short season or a long season. But none of us were created to be spiritually alone. God invites you into a covenant, eternal relationship with him, promising that we can never be separated from his love when we trust in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to watch this short little video. And this is speci- this is a question that was given at a conference. And so it's specifically for single people. But I really feel like even if you are happily or unhappily married, this completely applies to you because your sexuality is still given to you so that you would pursue covenant with Jesus and so that you would pursue intimacy and yada with Jesus. So we're going to watch this real quick. Kind of relating, okay, if I'm hearing all this, but what do I do if I'm single? Like, this all sounds great, but I am not at this point. This, this one woman said, if God reveals his character through the picture of marriage, what does that mean since I'm single? Mm -hmm. Really good question. You know, I think it means a few things. Um, First of all, I hope that you've gotten a sense from what we're talking about today that the finish line for a single person isn't marriage. You know, it's not like I will be complete when I get married um, because you have a lot of married friends sitting next to you who still don't feel complete. Uh, and who are still longing and lonely. And, you know, the best description that, that I can use, I like to use metaphors because they help me understand. But, um, you know, in a couple weeks, I'm really excited. I'm going to be able to take my kids to Disney World. Anybody been to Walt Disney World? Okay. So my kids are super excited to go to Disney World. But let's say that in preparation for them to go to Disney World, we like get on Netflix a backstage tour of Disney World. And they get to see the Magic Kingdom, and they get to see Epcot, and they get to see all the cool things that are at Disney World. Uh, but then instead of actually taking them to Disney World, we just watch the video over and over and over again. Do you think that would be satisfying? Okay, let me tell you single ladies that marriage is like watching the video. It is. I mean, there's great parts. 
There's great parts of watching the video, and it gets you excited. But remember that the video is meant to get you excited about going to Disney and experiencing it. Sexuality within marriage, and marriage is supposed to get us excited about intimacy with God and experiencing it and being fully known and experiencing covenant love. And while you're single, basically what God is telling you is skip the video and go to Disney. Okay, so that's a metaphor, but what it's really saying is all of our longing for sexuality really isn't a longing for sexuality. It's a longing for intimacy. It's a longing to be known. And yes, sexuality is a part of that. We do have physical bodies. We do have physical urges. But releasing that physical urge will never fully satisfy you. You could release that physical urge 10 times a day and still feel empty and lonely and like you're just longing for something. And so whether you're single or married, you've got to get to that core of what am I really longing for? Am I longing to share my body with someone or am I longing to belong to someone? Am I longing to be known and in a relationship where somebody's never going to leave me and they're going to take care of me? And if you can really identify that that's the inside longing that you have, then there are lots of wonderful ways to begin to meet that longing. Um, developing intimate relationships with people. Intimacy does not equal sex. Intimacy equals we care about each other, we share, we're there for each other. You can develop those kind of relationships. I mean, look at David, King David. He said that his his intimacy with da with Jonathan, his closest friend, was better than the love of a woman. Now, he wasn't saying that he had a sexual relationship with Jonathan. He was saying, Jonathan's friendship means more to me than any intimacy I've ever experienced with a woman. And some of you ladies would say that's true. You have friendships with other women that are more fulfilling for you than marriage would be. Uh, they're not sexual, but they're intimate. And so a lot of it is identifying that we're putting everything in the sexual basket, when in reality, sexuality is just a piece of what you're really longing for. Um, so I hope it helps. Um, you know, it's just, and also helps to remember that that we're never fulfilled, whether single or married, based on our marital status. It's just, it, we're always longing for more because we are created for the real Disney world, not for the video of it. Everything tonight is like, not even really scratching the surface. Like, it's kind of like, we're like, oh, I just gave a really light fingerprint on the surface. And... And so I was really struggling with this because I was like, okay, Jesus, there's so much that we could talk about. And there's so many practical things we could talk about if you or someone you know is struggling with lust or pornography um, or, or being in a relationship with someone that's inappropriate. And, but, but I think that until we really understand the big picture and what God is calling us to, Everything else is just going to be us trying to run to a destination that we don't know where it is. And, and until the destination is Jesus, then we don't have a goal. And you can try to, like, take cold showers and put filters on your computers, which are good, and you can have accountability partners, which are good. And you can do all the different things that are good and you need to if you're struggling. But if the end goal is not intimacy and relationship with Jesus, you're still going to be running around in circles. And if you're a parent, you have to train your children to know that too. Or if you're a friend, if you literally know one other human being, you have to be able to encourage them with that too. So the beautiful exchange is idolatry for worship and dependence. And remember, idolatry is serving and living a lifestyle of worship to an image instead of to the real thing. And so it's, it's taking all of these needs that God created us rightfully to have 
and trying to meet them outside of his order and of his gifts and of his way. And so the exact opposite of idolatry is worshiping not the image, but the true God. And I would say in my own life and almost every other person I've talked to about this, if they are struggling with any part of sexual, of sexual immorality, whether it's pornography or masturbation or having sex with their boyfriend or outside of marriage, whatever it is, one of the biggest things is that you have to be in daily worship because that's literally why we were created. And like, it's, I honestly, I love being on the worship team because I'm such a to-do list person. And so having to run through the songs all week, like the Lord ministers to my spirit because I'm worshiping to them. I don't just practice to them. And, and then I have other times of worship too, but, but we have to be in that actual worship, that proskuneo, but also the latria where we're, we're living a lifestyle of service and, and practically worshiping the Lord. And then dependence. And dependence is where we're not looking to our own pockets. We're not looking to our own strength to meet a need or to accomplish something, you know, and it can be so easy, especially when you're good at something. Like it can be really easy for me to just go to work and boom, I switch into work mode and I'm good at my job and I can do it well and I know that. And but Jesus is like, no, like I still, I still created you to live in dependence on me. And so, so we're supposed to be living in dependence on Jesus when we're at work and when we're doing the dishes and when we're cleaning up poop and when we're teaching up here on a Wednesday night and when we're leading worship and when we're praying for a friend, every single one of those things, we're supposed to be living in dependence on Christ. And we were talking about this Saturday, um, but one of my favorite things in the Gospels is how Jesus says over and over and over again, I don't do this of my own initiative. I don't do this of my own initiative. He says, I don't say anything of my own initiative. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I don't do anything out of my own initiative. I only do what the Father tells me to do. But there's one time, there's one time where Jesus says, I do this of my own initiative. And that one time was when he said, I lay down my life of my own initiative. And so as we live life, the only thing, as we live a life of worship independence, the only time that we're supposed to say, I'm doing this of my own initiative, is I'm laying down my life. I am choosing a lifestyle of dependence. I'm choosing a lifestyle of worship of my own initiative. And then Jesus comes in and like helps us do it. It's amazing. Because technically, if you think about it, like you can't crucify yourself. You know, you have like one arm and then like, what do you do with the other? And, and so like even Christ has to crucify us with himself to live a life of dependence. But that, that first laying down, that has to be of our own initiative. And so, <clears throat> so these are some questions and then we're going to read through and we still have time. So I'm really glad we're going to read through Colossians three again and we're going to do it a little slow. Because I like to like to dig into scripture in one second. Go back really quick. I want us to ask ourselves these questions, though. Am I serving my own image or the image of another person? Because here, well, never mind, we'll get to that later. Am I looking to God to meet my needs? Am I living in dependence on him? And then this is a really important question, I think, for every single person in here, whether you're single or married. How am I glorifying God in my sexuality? And this was a question I can't remember. I was listening to some podcast by Dr. Julie, Dr. Julie Slattery, who was the lady who spoke. And I think she asked this, like, she didn't ask this specific question, but I remember the Lord just asking me so clearly, like, Juliana, how, how are you glorifying me? How are you seeking after me in your sexuality right now? And it was a question I hadn't asked myself before because it's like, okay, well, when I get married, then, you know, I'm, I'm a servant to my husband and, and I love him selflessly and that's how we reveal the gospel and then he does the same thing. But Jesus is asking every single person, how are you glorifying me with your sexuality, whether you're married or not? 
And so is my sexuality, is my desire for intimacy pushing me to know Jesus? And is it pushing me to have deeper relationships with the people around me? And, and I think that whether, again, whether you're single or married, like that's what God is looking for in his people. So now we can go back to Colossians 3. So real long since this is so small. So we're starting out with, oh, I love how Paul asks questions. Therefore, if. Well, yeah, guys, I just took an entire chapter telling you you are raised up with Christ. If you have been raised up with Christ, you have. Keep seeking the things above. The NIV translates it, set your heart on the things above. But it literally just means to seek. So it's seeking with your heart. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And what I love is the parallels between Colossians and Ephesians. And Ephesians is one of my favorite books. And if you know Ephesians well, Ephesians 2 tells us something really, really important. That it tells us where we are seated. I know a lot of you know. Where are we seated? With Christ. That God has literally seated us with Christ. He says it right after he talks about how Christ has been seated at the right hand of God. So so keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. But that's where we are. We are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. And so he's saying, like, you are here. So stop seeking the things that are out there. You aren't out there anymore, even though that's what you see in the physical realm. In the spiritual realm, you are here, seated at the right hand of God. So seek the things that are here. Set your mind on the things above. Because that's where we are. Not on the things that are on earth. And and we talked about this, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I just, I love that so much that, like, it's it's like this this protective hiding, you know, like when, when little kids hide under their mom's skirts or something. It's It's, we are hidden, we are clothed with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. But I just, I paused this morning as I read that, and I was like, when Christ, who is our life, there are so many important things that God has called us to do, but they are not our life. There are so many people that God has called you to love and to minister but they are not your life. If you're married, he has called you to lay down your life for your husband or if you're a mother for your children, but they are not your life. And raising godly children is a charge to you, but that is not your life. And marriage is a great goal for me. I have to remind myself that sometimes. (laughs) Sorry, real moment. Like that, that is a great goal. That is good. That is holy. Marriage is holy, but that is not my life. And my job, if you have a great job that you love, if you don't have a great job that you love, then you're like, well, yeah, I know. Thankfully, that is not my life. And yes, I always like dance when I leave the office for more than like a weekend. So this Friday, so excited. But Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So therefore, since you are seated with Christ, since you're setting your hearts on the things above, since you're setting your mind on things above, since you have died and your life is hidden with Christ, since Christ is your life, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body, your flesh that is still here on earth as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passion, 
to all of those feelings that when they come up, you're like, literally, I cannot control them. That is a lie from the pit of hell. When you feel anger, when you feel lust, when you feel worry, when you feel fear and you're like, I literally cannot control that, that's a lie. Because Christ in you can control it. And Christ in you can tell you to consider those emotions and feelings that are not guided by God to be surrendered to his will and to take every thought captive. So we can consider these things as dead, evil desires and greed, which amounts to image worship. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. This was who you once were, but you are not this person anymore. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Put them all aside from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. And and Paul, I love, like Paul is like all about contrast. In Ephesians 4 and 5, he's constantly saying, put this off and put this on. Put off your old self, put on the new self. Put off lying, put on this. Put off stealing, put on hard work. Just off, on, off, on, off, on. And he's doing the same thing here. Do not lie to one another. And have, and, and you have put on the new self. So we're taking off the old self because it's dead. It's literally rotting flesh on you that is gone. And he's saying, put it off because Christ has empowered you to do it. And he will continue to empower you to do it. So put it off and put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge. A true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. All the things that once defined who you were, even being an American citizen, put it off. That is not where your identity is. Your resume, your college education, everything good, everything bad, the sin that once defined you, put it off. But Christ is all and is in all. So as those who have been chosen of God. I think that's so important. We love him because he first loved us. We sought him because he first sought us. I don't care. I'm not getting into predestination and all that. The Bible is just really clear. You were chosen. God foreknew you and said, I want them. You have been chosen of God. Holy and beloved. And while I was reading this a couple weeks ago, I wear this ring every day. And it's super scratched up. And it's hard to tell, but it has an engraving and it's Hebrew. And it's from um, Exodus 14, and it's quoted again in Zechariah. But it's talking about the utensils in the temple. And on all of them is written this, holy to the Lord, holy to Yahweh. And I wanted it just as a reminder that that's who I am now. I am holy to the Lord. And and sometimes when we think of the word holy, because the word holy means set apart, but a lot of times we can think of the word holy and think of everything that we're being set apart from. But that's, that's not what the word holy is. It's, it's holy to the Lord. That's what, that's what the focus of holiness is. Holiness isn't a focus on not doing all these things. It's a focus on being holy to the Lord. And yes, it involves not 
doing those things that were mentioned in verse 5 that we went through and and putting aside anger and malice it includes not doing that but but that's not your focus your focus isn't like oh get away get away your focus is holy to the lord and beloved you are not just loved you are beloved like you are the most precious apple of his eye person that Jesus has and he feels that way about every single one of you and my mom so often will be like oh you're my favorite and I say it now too I even say it to coworkers, you know like they'll do something for me and I'm like oh thank you you're my favorite and they're like like it's okay they've gotten used to it um but my mom is finite and you all literally cannot be her favorite like human logic and human limitations you can't be. But God is not limited by finiteness. And he's not limited by our logic. And so literally, every single one of you can be his favorite. And that's why he chose you. And so it's really important to remember that that's who you are, but that that's who the person next to you is. And when you start getting frustrated with someone or you're like, wow, well, this person is really easy to love and that person's not so much. Well, for Christ, you're all easy to love. I mean, if we're all real, we're all hard to love. But Christ has all the power in the whole world. So praise and hallelujah. So because you have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on agape, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And it's not, it's not let the peace of Christ be in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule. It actually has dominion. It has reign. It reigns in your heart. Let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So in this passage, there's putting off and putting on. And there's so many different things like that he's telling you to do. Do this and then do this and then do this and then do this. And so I would say if if we're going to really put to death, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. If we're really going to put all of that aside, then I think we need to do the things And remember the things that Paul is telling us to. We need to know who Christ is. We need to know that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We need to know that he has made the enemy a footstool for him. That God has made the enemy a footstool for Christ. There were too many pronouns in that. So we need to know who Christ is and what he has done. And I can't even remember, what was I reading? Oh, in chapter 2.15, it says, Christ disarmed the rulers in authority. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And it's interesting, the ESV uses the word shame. There is no shame in Christ anymore. The only shame he put on the enemy 
the only shame was what Christ endured on the cross when the father looked away. Like there's, there's no more shame anymore. And, and so whatever we've done that we're now holy and we're getting away from whatever we've done and we're putting off, there's no more shame in that because we're now clothed in Christ because we're seated with Christ in heavenly places and there's freedom in him to walk in righteousness. So I just thought that was cool. So we have to know who Christ is and where he's seated. And then we also have to know that we're with him. That Ephesians, we're seated with him in heavenly places. That's that's where we get our authority from. We don't get our authority from just being called a Christian. We get our authority because we're literally seated with Christ. That is our reality. That is a more true reality for your life than this. And our emotions will tell you otherwise. But we have to know our position in Christ. We have to set our heart on things above. We have to set our mind on things above. We have to consider the members of our body as dead to all of those things. But we have to consider ourselves alive in Christ. We're not just like, oh, well, we're dead. And so, you know, a dead corpse doesn't lust anymore. Like, we've all been to funerals and we've seen dead bodies. They don't covet anymore. They don't lust anymore. And so that's literally us. We are dead. And we need to consider ourselves as dead. And those things we don't have anything to do with anymore, but we are alive in Christ. And so only what Christ is bestowing on us, only what Christ is enabling us to walk in is what we're truly alive to. And there isn't greed and sexual immorality and, and passion and um, immorality and evil desires in Christ. Those are the only things, whatever is in Christ, whatever he has raised you up in is what you are truly alive to. We have to know that we're holy and beloved because the, the passage in James, and I think a lot of times we read it wrong, the passage in James that says to, to read the word and then to do what it says, it's like a man who goes to a mirror and then walks away, or whoever reads the word and doesn't do what it says, it's like a man who goes to a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. What James is actually talking about is you have to come to the word and say, word, who am I? Who is Christ saying I am? And then do it. Because that is when you go into the mirror and you're like, oh, Juliana is a natural brunette, and she now has blonde hair. But if I walk away from the mirror and I forget that, I'm going to forget what I just saw. And so you have to read the word and let the word say who you are. You are holy and beloved. So don't walk away from the word and then do something that is not holy and beloved, that is not fitting for someone who is holy and beloved. You have to read the word and let it say who you are. You are not a bride that has rolled around in pig muck. That's not who you are. You are a spotless bride. And that is who Christ is going to live. That is who he is going to live you, live through you as. Yes, all of that. Like, when Christ empowers us and strengthens us and lives his life through us and gives us the mind of Christ and gives us his heart... He is going to live a life that is holy and beloved through us because that's who we are now. So don't, don't go to the world and don't go to other people that will tell you something different than what scripture speaks over you. <clears throat> and so another thing is we're getting rid of all of those things, put on compassion and kindness and humility because we need grace, gentleness, patience, and love. And the um, 
actually, I thought this was cool, and I, I didn't bring it up before, but let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word rule is, yes, reign, but it's, all, it's, it's actually being an arbiter. And so the peace of Christ isn't just sitting there like, okay, let's all be peaceful. It's literally arbitrating between the things that are causing war in your heart. And it's bringing that to peace. It's ruling and it's saying, no, 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 no. We're coming over here. No, 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 no. We're going to dwell in peace. That's literally what the the peace of Christ is doing in our hearts. <clears throat> and if, if any of the, the things that we talked about with idolatry, any of the needs that God created us naturally that are good, and then we're looking to our own strength to fulfill, if, if any of those struck a chord with you and you're like, Jesus, I really, I really need help with gluttony or alcoholism, or pornography, or greed, or any of those things. <clears throat> this one is so important in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly abide within you. And John, in John 15, there's three different things that he tells us to abide. And if we do all of the, or if, if we live in those three things, and he says that we will have abundant joy. We will have the fullness of joy. It's not just like full joy. It's the fullness of joy. Abide in Christ. Abide in his word. Abide in his love. Sorry, abide in Christ, abide in his love, and let his word abide in you. And so weird, you would think that like the same spirit wrote all the different books of the body of the Bible, but then... Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell or abide within you. And, and you can't do that by just reading a verse a day to keep the devil away. And, and you can't do that by just like being like, I'm going to read a whole paragraph today or a whole chapter. Like, like you have to dig into it. And there's so many easy ways of digging into scripture easily that are available to us. Like, we don't live in 1000 AD where they had to, like, scribe letter for letter all, you know, the, the books of the Bible and stuff. Like, every single person here has multiple copies. And we all have it online. And we all have the Greek online. And the Hebrew online. And there's, like, really easy ways to click between all the verses. And there's audio Bibles so that if you're driving, you don't even have to read. You can just listen. And there's so many different, like we have access to more of scripture than any generation. And yet we are more illiterate in scripture than any other generation. So I'm going to challenge us. And literally everything I have said tonight is a challenge to me and it's God speaking to me, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And, and I love in, um, in Colossians, I, I, um, oh, I didn't with this. So in the front of, in the top of the book, I tend to write all the words that I see multiple times in the book. So all I have right now for Colossians is all, but there's a lot more, um, wisdom and knowledge he uses over and over. Wisdom and knowledge, wisdom and knowledge, wisdom and knowledge. Um, and in, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures. I love treasures. Like, I would be a treasure hunter if I could. But I love treasure. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, with all wisdom. And where are we getting that wisdom? We're getting it from Christ. Because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. With all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another. It's not just me teaching up here. It's, hey, I read this verse this morning, and I want to tell you about it. It's, 
hey, I was listening to this worship song and it reminded me of this. And then God spoke to my heart this. And does it line up with scripture? And going to someone else, you can be like, yeah, yeah, it's this verse. And admonishing one another and encouraging one another. And encouraging one another, admonishing, teaching with psalms and hymns. So it is totally normal to just walk up to someone's face and start singing. Like Paul said to. So just saying. Hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. <clears throat> I don't have time, but I do. Um, and I'm sorry, there are some of you that have already heard me say this like three times, but that's okay. So the other day as I was reading Psalm 89, how blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Oh, Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. And this is why thankfulness, this is why praise is so, so important. So I read this verse, and I'm like, how blessed are the people who know the joyful sound? Like, what does that even mean? And it says, the blast of the trumpet, the shout of joy. And I'm like, I still don't. I don't. Okay, cool. Like, blessed are the people who are surrounded by other people worshiping and praising. But and then there was a note to Leviticus. I was like, cool, we're going to go read Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it talks about how on the first day of the seventh month, which like a week or two weeks later is the Day of Atonement, but on the first day of the seventh month, they gather everyone together and they blow the trumpets and everyone gives a huge, uproarious shout for joy. And then they make a sacrifice. And I was just like, whoa. Like, that's what worship is. When we get together... We make a huge uproar, a shout of joy to the Lord. And then we make a sacrifice in our worship. And so you can't have praise and shouting for joy without thankfulness. And so I just, I, I want us to keep that in our minds that as we're praising God and as we're singing with thankfulness, it's this shout of joy right before we're about to lay ourselves on the altar. Because that is where true joy comes from. And so whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks again through him to God the Father. <clears throat>